so as we all are um, coming back in and settling in from dropping off the kids and the craziness of that, um, I want to thank everyone for being here. Um, and I want to say hi to everybody on Facebook, um, people that are listening on the podcast. I kind of nerd out over the fact that people that can't be here are still able to listen in and participate. Um, and before we even dig into today's text, I wanted to share the opening story from the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you were here last week, you would have been here for Alina Isaac's um, confirmation. And you probably noticed she got a copy of this book. We actually have a lot. We had a lot of copies of it. We've gotten more as the kids have multiplied in our family. And um, that's really great because some of them have been destroyed. Um, we do have this one. It does have rips and crayon on the cover, but it is still intact. Um, so even as an adult, it's a kid's book, and I still love reading it because it ties the Old Testament and New Testament themes into the big picture of the Bible itself. It's the story of God chasing after his people's hearts and inviting them into communion with him. And while it takes a much darker tone, our passage and parable this week will share a lot of the same themes. So the first chapter is the story in the song. God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror, to show, what he, to show us what he is like, to help us know him and to make our hearts sing. The way a kitten chases her tail, the way red poppies grow wild, and the way a dolphin swims. And God puts it into words too and wrote it in a book called the Bible. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules. It's telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll find out, most of the people in the Bible are not heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away, and at times they're downright mean. Now, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. So today, in this whole overarching story of the Bible, um, where are we when we come to today's passage? Well, that baby has come, and he has declared his purpose. He's the promised Messiah that we've waited for. At this point in the narrative, he has preached to the masses. 
He's shown miraculous signs and mercy to the hurting. He's entered Jerusalem on a donkey while being regaled as a king, and he's overturned the money changers' tables in the temple. He's returned to the temple after this, and he's currently sitting in the temple courts to speak to the religious leaders of his day. He is telling a parable about a very specific group of people while looking those very same people in the eyes. It, and it's not a complimentary or a feel-good story. And when he makes the statement that these players in the story are willing to kill to maintain their status, he is telling them exactly what they're about to do. So the phrase that came to mind when I realized the setting of this was chutzpah. It's another Jewish word. Um, and I couldn't wrap my head around the confidence and the presence of mind that Jesus had to look his potential murderers in the eye. So we get to today's passage, um, Matthew 22, 1 through 14. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to summon those who had been invited to the banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, the feast I have prepared for you is ready. My oxen and fattened cows Fattened cattle have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they were indifferent and went away, one to his farm, another to his business. The rest seized his slaves, insolently mistreated them, and killed them. The king was furious. He sent his soldiers, and they put those murderers to death and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but the ones who had been invited were not worthy. So go into the main streets and invite everyone you can find to the wedding banquet. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the wedding guests, he saw a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without the wedding clothes? But he had nothing to say. Then the king said to his attendants, tie him up hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So Jesus is telling this parable after a few more that were in the same vein. He's answering a direct question that's been posed to him. By what authority are you teaching these things? And this parable is a familiar theme to his audience. The idea of a messianic feast was common in Jewish tradition, where the one who is promised has come and the people celebrate accordingly. Also, God frequently refers to his people as his bride throughout the Old Testament. So this is starting out as a traditional story, except it takes a much less familiar turn. The fact that the people would refuse a king's invitation and even kill his messengers, was, it was ludicrous, right? If we were talking about an earthly king, the judgment and ruin would have been imminent after their first refusal. You don't, you don't disrespect a king like this and you get away with it. In that day, how many people were put to death by refusing to submit to Roman rule? And even today, how many countries exist where you're faced with immediate punishment if you disrespect your leader? But instead of judgment, another invitation is given. Come to my banquet. The son you've been expecting is here. It's time to celebrate his arrival. The scene is made even more enticing by his description of the preparations. I've prepared tables and a fatted calf. I'm calling you to come. I'm calling you to something beautiful and good. But his enthusiasm and call is, really, is greeted in two ways. 
The first is apathy. The people are too concerned with their earthly lives and possessions to respond to this heavenly call. They've built their own kingdom, so why would they go to another one? The word indifferent is the one that stood out most to me in this phrase, Um, and it reminded me of a quote immediately from, I'm going to say his name wrong, Elie Wiesel, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. And that's what's happening here. There's no love for the king. And I actually um, found it really interesting and a little ironic that later on in the same discourse, someone asked Jesus about the greatest commandment. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. But the players in this parable didn't love God. They didn't feel anything for him anymore. Jesus is telling them, you might follow the law and give lip service to the Father, but your hearts are hardened. You're so, for, you're so focused on your earthly comfort and your livelihood that you're incapable of seeing the Messiah right in front of you. The other response was violent opposition. These men were so offended and threatened by the possibility of losing their status that violence seemed the best and most effective way to maintain their lives as they were. The parables before this one in chapter 21 are just as inflammatory as this one, by the way. He tells of disobedient and obedient sons and tenants of a vineyard that beat and kill the landowner's servants and even his son. Jesus is not mincing his words here, and he's telling these men they're in the wrong. This story is, in many ways, thought to be meant to be ridiculous to the listeners. The idea of men killing a king's messengers was unheard of. The tone of these parables, including the ones preceding it, take on almost a sarcastic and defiant air as Jesus is speaking. No one would ever do this, and yet that's what your ancestors did and what you're getting ready to do. Um, A point was made during our meeting that Jesus doesn't allow for as much discussion of the parables like he did early in his ministry. He would tell parables, usually ones with peaceful and pastoral undertones, we're shepherds, we're making bread, we're sowing seeds, And then his disciples would ask him to explain what he meant, and he'd gladly do it. Here, he's been asked by what authority he is acting through, and he is all too happy to respond with that full authority. It's almost as if he knew that the disciples were teachable, while the leaders were stubborn and unwilling and unable to hear. They were as stiff-necked as their historical predecessors. And as it says in John 12, 38 through 40, So that what the prophet Isaiah spoke might be fulfilled when he said, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the Lord's power been revealed? This is why they could not believe. Isaiah also said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, so that they might not perceive with their eyes and understand with their mind and turn, and I would heal them. The servants of the king, namely the prophets throughout Jewish history, have been rejected time and time again. They share the king's message, and it's ignored, rejected, or opposed, especially when their message doesn't line up with the leaders of their day. And when Jesus starts speaking of the son, they completely understood what he was saying. It says just before this in Matthew 21, 45, and 46, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So at this point, 
Is anyone else really thankful that God doesn't respond to rejection the way that we do? Because it has been my experience that rejection hurts. Whether it's from an employer, a friend, a romantic relationship, or family, it hurts. It can make even the most confident people doubt themselves. In some cases, it feels like an invalidation of your strengths, personality, or abilities. It can make you want to close yourself off and stop responding to anyone else who may end up being kind or receptive simply because you don't want to be hurt again. And I honestly think God is hurt by his people's rejection. The whole story of the Bible is of him seeking reunification as his creation turns away after their own desires and distractions of the world. But that constant rejection is still not enough to turn away from his people. He continues to pursue, continues to beckon, continues to keep the doors open. To reference a Disney movie, because that's all I watch now with children, um, this is not like in Frozen, where there's this mysterious and removed ruler in some castle on a hill, and the gates are going to be opened, but it's one day only. Now, in this story, God flings wide open the doors, and he extends the invitation to everyone. He extends it even farther, and he keeps them open, and he continues bringing in everyone who will come. It makes me very thankful that he is divine and not human. So a point that was made in the teaching team meeting that actually ties into last week's message was if we're going by earthly standards, you might be tempted to think of this invitation as second best. The people that were really wanted weren't able to come, so the bench warmer team is called in. But that cheapens the gift and the power of the giver, doesn't it? Just like the wages that were given freely by the landowner, if we take away our standards of earning the gift, this invitation becomes about the goodness of the king, not the status of the people. So after all that, we get to a really confusing part, the guy with the clothes that gets kicked out. I found a lot of various interpretations here as I was studying, and I'm going to share a few of them because I don't want to claim I figured that out. If this portion confuses the theologians that wrote the commentaries I read, I don't have it. I do want to make sure that the interpretation, the interpretation still tie into the character of God. One take is that in traditional Jewish culture, wedding clothes were provided by the host. You came in, and you were welcomed into the celebration by a gift. And to refuse this gift and refuse to participate in the celebrations would have been offensive. It would say you didn't want to be there, or you didn't approve of the union at all. Another uh, point that was made in an interpretation would be like wearing tennis clothes to a funeral. It's a very different setting, but it's still meant to inspire respect. So even if your clothes are all black, if you are obviously wearing an outfit that shows you are ready to make a quick exit and go do something better, you are obviously disrespecting the whole reason you're even there. And the best point in trying to make sense of this um, when researching was that I have to remember not to take it too literally. It is still a parable. I think um, we get caught up in the details and the logistics of it. So, you know, oh, these guys were just brought in off the street. Of course they didn't have time to go home and change. And what if they were poor and they didn't have anything else and all of that. And we're forgetting that this is a story that is shared as an example of God's character. Uh, Jesus is not sharing a literal telling of real-world events. 
But all of it comes to the same conclusion. When you come in, you don't get to be an observer in this kingdom. If you come, you take on the character of the king. This is not cheap grace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer has described. To paraphrase, cheap grace is what we see when we apply grace and forgiveness writ large without conditions. You spend an hour of your Sundays. You maybe even come in on a Wednesday night. You commune with God and others. You believe that his gift of grace is already applied to you, and you're set because you've acknowledged it. Instead, costly grace is obedience. It's following Christ always and forever. It's dying each day, and it's harrowing. So even though it is costly, it still speaks to the goodness of God. I'm going to read from another commentary. The people were thrilled that God's message was for them after all. But there was a difference between this wide-open invitation and the message so many want to hear today. We want to hear that everyone is all right exactly as they are. That God loves us as we are, and he doesn't want us to change. People often say this when they want to justify particular types of behavior, but the argument doesn't work. When the blind and lame came to Jesus, he didn't say, oh, you're all right as you are. He healed them, because they wouldn't have been satisfied with anything less. When the prostitutes and extortioners came to Jesus, or for that matter, to John the Baptist, he didn't say, oh, you're all right as you are. His love reached them where they were, but his love refused to let them stay as they were. Love wants the best for the beloved. Their lives were transformed, healed, and changed. We do want to be careful here because this is not saying that we're meant to hold people to a man-made moral standard. That's exactly what the Pharisees and Sadducees were doing. It's what prompted Jesus to clear out the temple with a bullwhip and overturn tables in holy anger. These man-made standards were keeping the seekers from reaching God by creating a barrier that God himself had not created. All are welcome, and if we're forcing uniformity by a human standard instead of God's, that goes directly against God's hope for unification, both between us and him as well as between each other. Don't keep people from experiencing God's goodness because we're still expecting him to behave like us humans do with scarcity, jealousy, or scorekeeping. It's another instance of letting God be God and being sure that we're putting the goal of being remade in his image at the forefront of our interactions. The worship team can start coming up. To sum all of this up, this whole confusing and sometimes dark parable still speaks to some amazingly hopeful truths. God is good, and he wants to be reunified with his creation and show us his love. He wants to show us a better way than the messy human standards and sinful nature that we sometimes cling to way too tightly. He has spent the entirety of human history pursuing us with his overwhelming and relentless love. And that doesn't stop just because we reject him because he knows his way is better and his kingdom is good. So one of the ways we're reminded of his goodness is by remembering Jesus' sacrifice. That's why we are going to um, celebrate communion together. He took the punishment that our rebellion deserves. He submitted to God's plan to atone for our sins by taking the cross 
the physical pain of torture and the emotional pain of being separated from his father. He left heaven and suffered so that we can have the hope of heaven and a repaired relationship with God now and forever. So we, we remind ourselves of this by taking the bread, representing his body broken, and taking the wine, representing his blood spilled. Everyone is welcome, and we're not going to dismiss you come as you feel led. We're also called to partake in the community that this call creates as we meet together each week. And one of the acts of worship we'll get to participate in is the offering, so you're going to see baskets passed as well. You're going to get to share in the practical, like keeping the lights on, so that we can share this God's message every week and for the people that use our building throughout the week. We're also supporting our missions efforts around the world to tell everyone we can that the gates are open and they're being called to come. I am very thankful that I get to participate in worship with you, and I'm really thankful for y'all letting me share.
surrender, Lord. I give myself to Thee. Fill me with Thy love. Empower, let the blessings fall on me. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to speak your word with understanding but have not love if I have a faith so strong when I sweep mountains move loving me is no I give my will for for
But the greatest is the life that shares the love like last song and sing it with us.
finished another group of Discovering Grace. It's a class where we talk about our mission, our values, our history, how we do things here at Grace. And um, one of my favorite things is helping to welcome and activate the people that come to us. So we are confident that those of you that come to us, you have new things for us. You have things on your heart ministries, ideas, and things that you want to do. And so we want to welcome you today with this time-honored, I don't know, seven-month tradition we've had so far. <laughs> we've sponged it off of my son-in-law's grandma's church, and I thought it was awesome. So to be activated, we are giving you your very own servant's towel. And we hope that you will join us in serving in however God is calling you to serve. And so we had a little bit of technical difficulty this morning. We may not have our slides ready, but... No? Okay. Nope. But we want to welcome Amy Beth. Stand up, Amy. Amy has her kids, Abigail and Noah, who she said are like on a three-day pajama strike at home, <laughs> enjoying their spring break. But look for them, and we welcome them. Okay, here, Amy. I'm not athletic. Throw it, throw it, throw it, throw it, throw it. Yeah! <laughs> All right. And we also welcome Bailey Cantrell. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I had the pleasure of hearing her sing today, so... Okay, Abwe and Sakitu, I don't know if I can make it that far. Come on, we also, you can do it. You can <laughs> we do also it. welcome Abwe Abedi and Sakitu Mbuto, their kids, Mavita, Jonathan, Kalima, Monica, Beatrice, and Angel. Okay, here we go. Yeah! <laughs> and one, one for each of you. One, Sakitu. Sakitu. Uh, probably be ibuprofen for Momo this afternoon. All right, so we have a benediction as you go out today. Go today into this messy, sometimes lonely world as one of the invited, inviting others to join in the feast. Get extra chairs and open your eyes and heart. Give with your hands time and make space, whether it's at a round table, a long banquet table, or in the quiet of your own home. Take comfort and power in the great love your heavenly Father has for you and others. Go in peace. <laughs>